China seemed to give a commitment that it was not going to provide this weaponry to Ukraine. So this was like a big ask that the Biden administration made of Beijing at the start of that conflict. And if they were to go back on that now, then that's going to be seen as just an incredibly aggressive act. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. some time since we did an episode about China, but in the last six months to a year, a lot's been happening. There's been a lot of changes in the Biden administration's policy towards China. There's been what's happening in China itself with the first nationwide protests against the Communist Party that have happened in decades. And then, of course, there's also been the spy balloon, which recently appeared off the west coast of the US, then flew all the way um, over to the east coast before being shot down by the US Air Force. Today we're going to do a deep dive into what all of this means, try to tie these threads together, and give the broader picture about US-Chinese relations at this stage in Biden's presidency. If you enjoy America Explained, which we hope you do, then please tell a friend about the podcast to help us grow, or consider leaving a five-star review on your podcast platform. If you don't want to leave a five-star review, forget I said anything at all. Okay, so to talk about these events, I'm joined together by Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Andy. How's it going? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Good. Were you uh, scared by the balloon in the skies across America? No, honestly, I was just kind of having flashbacks to the Balloon Boy incident in Colorado back in like 2009. I don't know if you... No, I don't know about that. What was that? It was like a boy who supposedly got stuck inside his family's weather balloon. And then it was a whole scandal on the news and they were trying to get him down. But then it turns out it was a hoax and his parents wanted to have like a reality TV show and he wasn't actually inside the balloon. So. That's really funny. So that's just yeah. like that episode of The Simpsons where Bart puts um, a radio down the well, like a walkie-talkie, and then he speaks through it and pretends there's a boy stuck down the well. Was it basically the same thing? Maybe that's where they got the idea for it. That, that's very funny. I did not know that. Well, I guess that balloon episode had no potential national security implications. Uh, it's kind of funny. This one, you know, did have potential national security implications. It also had potential interstellar implications. So um, there was this, you know, there was the first balloon that we all heard about. And then after that, there were some other objects that the U.S. shot down, some of which, according to early reports, sounded a little bit like the UFO reports that we've heard about in, in recent years. The objects were kind of characterized the same way, but then it turned out, okay, when they looked again, they were probably just also like some kind type of balloon. We don't know exactly what those ones were, so the one that we really focus on is the big balloon, because we know this came from China. We know that it was an intelligence gathering device. So what did they actually find after they shot down that big balloon? Yeah, so when they shot it down, it was over pretty shallow water. So the Navy and the Coast Guard were able to recover parts of it for for analysis, which they're still doing, but it turns out that it was about 60 meters tall, so quite big, and it had equipment on it that could be used for intelligence collection, including intercepting communication signals. Yeah, and I guess that, I mean, it was really big, right? So I think that they characterized it as about the size of like a regional jet, so you Mm -hmm. could see this with the naked eye, right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, it, it was really quite a spectacle. 
it caused a lot of debate and conversation across America because you could literally see it floating in the sky across America. I think some people even tried to shoot at it yeah. to, to get it down. What what was the debate like around Biden's response to it? Was he seen to respond to it well or not so well? Yeah, well, it kind of depends on how you look at it. So first, when it kind of started, it was seen as a pretty big embarrassment for the Biden administration and the U.S. more generally that something like this slipped past their detection because it was first spotted by people on a commercial airline, I believe. Um, and so even before it was spotted above Montana, which is an area that houses an ICBM, um, Intercontin- Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Base, the balloon had flown across parts of Alaska and Canada already. And so when it was eventually shot down off of the East Coast, um, after floating across the country, a lot of Republicans and conservative media really criticized the Biden administration for not shooting it down sooner and implied that this showed that Biden and his administration was weak. But Biden's response to this was that shooting it down over land could have led to casualties or damaging property, so they waited until it was over water. And there hasn't really been any good polling on this yet about where public opinion is, but I think that the sense you get from the White House was that this was a pretty uncomfortable situation to be in. They didn't really want this to happen. And, you know, watching this float over the U.S., and seemingly being unable to do anything about it was not really an ideal situation for them either. Does it actually mean that the U.S. is under imminent threat from China or another state or even aliens, as critics of the administration are implying? Or is this just kind of an embarrassment rather than a danger? Yeah, so I think it's definitely the latter. Um, After this incident, the U.S. kind of adjusted filters on their radar detection capabilities, which is probably why they've detected these other objects that you mentioned earlier, because the radar was now looking for things of that size. And these other objects were pretty small. And so in order to uh, like reduce unhelpful interference, the radar previously wasn't calibrated to detect those types of objects. Now, as you mentioned, it's appearing more likely that the latest three objects were not malicious at all. I think one of them might even been have been like a cheap balloon from some <laughs> balloon enthusiast club that was then shot down with a multi-million dollar (laughs) missile. So these were really recreational balloons that probably posed no threat. And so now the U.S. is also looking into whether the Chinese balloon ever intended to enter U.S. airspace at all, or if it was blown off course by weather. There are some reports that maybe it was supposed to be above Hawaii or Guam in the Pacific and then drifted off course. But even if that is the case, the Biden administration is still maintaining that it was a spy balloon And they've now found at least four other instances of spy balloons over U.S. airspace in the last four years. Yeah, and I guess there's there's a real debate within national security circles in the U.S. about why exactly China did this. So did China even intend to do this or was it just blown off course or or was it something that kind of a provocation, like a message they, they wanted to send? I even heard some people speculating that this could be some kind of strategy to like wear down the U.S. Air Force gradually over time. That if you send like dozens and dozens and dozens of hundred thousand dollar balloons, and then you require the U.S. military to make like a multi hundred thousand dollar or million dollar effort to shoot it down, then that's kind of like good math from the Chinese side. Now that seems a little bit far fetched to me. It seems like what could have been happening here, if it was intentional, was from my perspective maybe two things. So. Firstly, this could have just been an attempt by the Chinese to understand America's uh, surveillance capabilities, radar capabilities, and to gather signals intelligence on the ground. So the US and China are constantly engaged every single day 
in using intelligence platforms to try to gather signals information about each other's militaries. The U.S. does this off the Chinese coastline all the time. It, it flies shit and planes through international airspace, pointing surveillance equipment into China in an attempt to figure out the signals profile of the Chinese military. So that's like the way that they're communicating with each other, where they are based, what weaknesses might exist in their communications, how they could be jammed in the event of a conflict. Because if a conflict breaks out tomorrow, then you want that information from yesterday about where all these Chinese military assets are. So maybe this was kind of some Chinese attempt to do that to the US. Maybe it wasn't so much about the the tactical gains that they get from that information, but it was more strategically about sending a message that China can do this to the US as well. Because it's something that the Chinese government complains about endlessly, this American intelligence gathering in international airspace and international waters just off the coast of China. So maybe this was an attempt to say we can do this too we want to open up a conversation about surveillance and and about what you're doing and you know near our homeland but this is kind of all speculation right now and and ultimately we don't know if this was even something that beijing intended to do but it has nevertheless had an impact on the relationship between washington and beijing right now yeah it has had a pretty big impact so right after the incident Secretary of State Antony Blinken canceled a trip that was planned to China. And since then, the Chinese government has continued to really vehemently deny that it was a spy balloon. They've claimed that it was a civilian research aircraft that was blown off course. But the administration still isn't really buying that based off of the surveillance equipment that was on board. But still, Chinese officials have continued their kind of usual um, public tactics and have been blaming the situation on the U.S. They even called it an indiscriminate use of force to shoot down the balloon. And so despite pretty harsh accusations on both sides, though, we haven't seen a complete deterioration of relations during the crisis. But I still think that this incident and the cancellation of Blinken's meeting has escalated what was already a pretty tense relationship. And Blinken did still meet with his Chinese counterpart at the Munich Security Conference a few weeks ago in February. But that meeting has been described as pretty confrontational. And at that meeting, Blinken also announced that the U.S. is concerned or is discouraging China from ever giving any sort of lethal aid to Russia to use against Ukraine. So I think that is just adding another layer to this balloon crisis. And it's an indication of the more actual serious issues that are at stake. Biden's talked in the past about wanting to put up what he calls these guardrails on the U.S.-Chinese relationship to stop it from deteriorating too far. And you definitely don't get the sense from the administration that they want to see this spy balloon incident blown out of proportion. Yeah, and I think that these stories about the Chinese potentially providing weaponry to Russia are really, really huge. And like, that's actually what I think is the most important issue in this relationship right now, because if that were to happen, then we would essentially be in a proxy war between the US and China, where the US would be supplying Ukraine, China would be supplying Russia. The Biden administration at the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine saw it as a really huge success that China seemed to give a commitment that it was not going to provide this weaponry to Ukraine. So this was like a big ask that the Biden administration made of Beijing at the start of that conflict. And if they were to go back on that now, then that's going to be seen as just an incredibly aggressive act by the Biden administration. It's going to really 
underline their belief that or well i should say not underline their belief but because i don't think they believe this yet but it's going to push them to believe that china just cannot ever really be trusted to be a responsible international actor if you look at the countries that are providing weaponry and support to russia it's countries like iran like north korea it's states that the u.s considers to be complete pariahs and if the Chinese leadership chooses to go into that category by providing this aid to Russia, that's going to provide, you know, or provoke a really huge deterioration in the relationship that I think the Biden administration will respond to very, very sharply with definitely increased sanctions on China and other measures as well. Like we're going to talk about a bit later in the episode, it's a bit confusing what the Chinese are doing right now because they had seen that they wanted to improve relations recently, but then this uh this this trial balloon about the weapons to russia and then this actual balloon in the skies across america kind of popped up at the same time and this seems to be a more aggressive policy so after the break we're going to talk a bit more about the bigger picture in u.s chinese relations over the last year and and what they look like prospectively as well You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So one of the big things that I think about a lot about Biden's China policy is actually how much tougher it's been than Trump's policy was. I think that's for two reasons. So one is just that the Biden administration is generally more organized than the Trump administration. They're better at picking a policy and sticking to it because what they're trying to do doesn't just get changed by whatever the latest tweet is. But also they're much better at building international coalitions and working with allies than Trump was. But that's not all of it, actually. It's also the case that Biden has expanded competition with China into different areas that Trump wasn't really that interested in. So Trump was very, very, very focused on trade. He was very focused on the trade war that he wanted to wage with China and and tariffs. But actually, you know, contrary to his image in other areas, Trump was not actually that aggressive towards China. So He never really pressured the Chinese on either human rights issues or security issues. There's two like great quotes that I always use whenever I'm talking about this issue, which um, actually come from a book that was written by Josh Rogan, who's a a Washington um, Post columnist. And he has these two quotes that, that Trump said to people during the Trump administration. So the first one was he said, quote, And and this was to his subordinates, like the people who were making his national security policy. He said, I never want to hear from you about Taiwan, Hong Kong, or the Uyghurs. The second one, even kind of more explosive, he said, quote, Taiwan is like two feet from China. We're 8,000 miles away. If they invade, there isn't a thing that we can do about it. And these quotes just really encapsulate the fact that Trump was just not at all actually really committed to a broad strategy of containing China. He didn't believe in protecting Taiwan. He didn't really believe in the presence of US troops in places like South Korea and Japan. Now, he didn't really actually carry out any major troop withdrawals because people in his administration just kind of outmaneuvered him and and stopped that from happening. But all throughout his presidency, the conversation in in US-Asia policy was, where are we going to withdraw troops from? Which was really... 
like the opposite of what Biden has done. So Biden has placed a lot of emphasis on strengthening military alliances in the region. He signed this AUKUS deal with Australia. He's done stuff to shore up the US alliance with Japan. And he's also leaned much more heavily into criticizing the Chinese for human rights issues as well. Trump didn't really care about what happened to Hong Kong or what happened to the Uyghurs, but Biden has has made this, uh, you know, rhetorically at least, and, and, and we also are told that this is discussed between US and Chinese officials behind closed doors. He's turned this into a centerpiece of his diplomacy. Now, the other thing that Biden has done, and this is what we're going to talk about now, is that he's not only kept in place Trump's tariffs, so he's continued the Trump trade war, but he's actually expanded it as well with this massive attempt to cripple and compete with the Chinese semiconductor industry. And this is designed as, I mean, basically the thinking behind this within the administration is that these broad tariffs that Trump put on the Chinese economy don't really do that much to harm the Chinese economy. They also actually harm America because they make a lot of consumer goods more um, expensive for Americans. So this semiconductor ban is like a targeted surgical strike against an important part of the Chinese economy. And yeah, that's actually really consequential. And I think, Catherine, you're going to tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So I think it's important to recognize that this competition over semiconductor chips, it's not just about who can make the best smartphones. These semiconductors are used in a lot of really high-tech equipment, including military and intelligence applications. And so they're also vital to emerging artificial intelligence technologies, things like ChatGPT and Alexa that are currently generating a huge amount of buzz in the West and are assumed to be really vital to the next stage of this digital economy. And there aren't very many countries in the world that can produce really advanced semiconductors, but the U.S., along with Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, and China, is one of them. But over the last year or so, as you alluded to, the Biden administration has really declared war on the Chinese semiconductor industry. So we can see this in the CHIPS Act, which was passed in August, and that provides a huge amount of money, around $280 billion, to invest in the U.S. semiconductor industry and try to give it the resources it needs to stay ahead of its competitors. And this has proven really controversial controversial in Europe as well because it's not harming the U.S. economy, but it's harming European semiconductor industry too. But the Biden administration cares a lot more about staying ahead of China and is basically telling Europeans that they kind of need to take the hit. But the bigger, like much bigger policy that the administration announced was a semiconductor export ban that was announced in October. And that's an attempt to kind of constrain China's semiconductor industry. So this ban is a pretty big intervention to try to cut off China from this technology and expertise that it would need to develop the really high-end AI chips at every stage of development. So first, it'll prevent U.S. manufacturers from exporting their chips to China, and then it'll try to prevent China from developing its own high-performing AI chips by blocking access to the U.S. software and equipment that it would need. And then finally, it'll try to stop China from developing its own equipment, since it can't access the U.S. equipment, by halting access to U.S.-made manufacturing parts. So it's a really sweeping ban. And at the same time, the Senate included a measure in the 2023 defense budget that will prevent the U.S. government agencies from sending, from using any Chinese chips going forward as well. And I think a risk of a lot of these measures is that China could go elsewhere to get semiconductors and take the parts that it needs to make them. So another aspect of Biden's policy on this is to create kind of a coalition of other chip producing states 
who then won't sell them to China. And at the end of January, the U.S. entered talks with Japan and the Netherlands, which are two other major semiconductor producers, and we tried to convince them to join the export ban. But this is proving to be pretty challenging, I think. Um, while the Netherlands is keeping pretty quiet about the agreement, a few weeks ago, a Japanese official implied that Japan's restrictions on ship exports to China will be a lot milder than those in the U.S. And so if there are any asymmetries between countries that are producing ships and restricting them to China, that's good news for China. But I think the U.S. really wants to get this policy right because competition in this area could be important for any future military conflict between the U.S. and China. And a few weeks ago, there was a summit on responsible AI in the military domain called REAIM in The Hague, and it was hosted by the Dutch and South Korean governments and kind of gathered people from the government, military, and civil society to discuss the development of AI in military and warfare applications. And China was really at the forefront of a lot of this discussion. And I attended a panel and panelists there pointed out that in the event of a maritime invasion by China of Taiwan, that Taiwan's best chance of success would be fully autonomous AI-powered drone swarms. And this is a technology that isn't yet fully developed, but could be in the next few decades or even within the next decade, whether by China or the US or another state. And so it's kind of creating this AI arms race that is pretty dangerous. And at this summit in The Hague, the U.S. Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security also announced that the U.S. is creating what's called a political declaration on responsible military use of artificial intelligence and autonomy. So a bit of a mouthful, but basically it's just a statement of principles that are designed to make sure that humans stay in the loop whenever it comes to decisions that use dangerous weapons such as nuclear weapons. And it also includes calls for ensuring compliance with international humanitarian law, maintaining the ability to deactivate any AI systems that show unintended or unpredictable behavior. So I think with this declaration, the U.S. and whichever other countries choose to endorse this declaration are trying to be the leaders in this really new and evolving technological domain. But whether China is going to want to sign on to that isn't clear yet. And there's just really little trust in the relationship right now due to some reasons that we've talked about before, that there's a risk that AI safety could really go out the window. Yeah, so let's take another break. And then when we come back, I'm going to try and look at this from the Chinese side a little bit and and talk about why there's been this uh, confusion and breakdown in trust in the relationship. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. So, US-China relations have been actually kind of confusing over the last year or so, and particularly since this semiconductor export ban. In the West, when this policy came along, it was viewed as like a huge bombshell this kind of, oh no, they didn't moment among everyone who's an expert in this area. And people were saying this is an extinction level event for the Chinese semiconductor industry. This is something that China absolutely is going to have to respond to very, very strongly. It's like a huge problem for them. And although it was notable that although the policy is going to do more damage to China than Trump's tariffs ever did, it lacked a lot of impact on public opinion, I think, because it was something that it wasn't a big splashy announcement. There weren't a ton of tweets insulting China. It was quite like a wonky 
domain. But it was generally agreed among experts, at least, that this was a big deal and China was going to respond to it accordingly. And that was particularly the case because when that policy was announced, it was the run-up to the Communist Party Congress. And at this Congress, Xi Jinping was going to have his position as paramount leader of the party reinforced. But there was this general belief that he would feel the need to take a strong anti-US position at that Congress. And then afterwards, in order to kind of legitimize his leadership and, you know, show that he was standing up for China and making China great again or whatever. But actually what happened in the aftermath of that meeting was that the atmospherics in the US-China relationship got unexpectedly better. So it seemed like the strategic decision that had come out of this party congress was that they were going to try to improve relations with the United States. And there was actually a meeting between Xi and Biden in November, which had really positive atmospherics. It had observers talking about the fact that it looked like Beijing was trying to improve relations with the US. Then the balloon incident happened, and that kind of scrambled this narrative. And I think that one way, and I'm not saying that this is the way to interpret it, but one way that the balloon incident is explicable is that it was intended, and it was kind of a low-key payback by Xi to show that he's tough on America, but without having to move on some kind of big, really important and consequential strategic issue. And we're really waiting for the strategic response from China to the semiconductor ban. And we're in a kind of state of confusion about exactly what Chinese policy is right now, because they're sending different signals about the relationship. I think at the root of whatever decision making is happening in China, and perhaps of this uncertainty, is actually really this unusual domestic turmoil that we've seen in China in recent months. So not long after that party congress, China was rocked by the first truly national protests that have occurred in China for a really long time. Now, protest in China is not actually all that uncommon, but it's usually directed at local authorities rather than the central government. Because you can protest what, say, the mayor of Chongqing did without necessarily appearing disloyal to the central government in Beijing, often these local protests are kind of framed as an appeal to the central government to intervene in a local situation. But these protests were really different because they were actually inspired by not just any Chinese central government policy, but really like the central government policy that Xi Jinping had made his own over the last four years, three years or so. And those were China's really strict zero COVID policies. So these policies, which have caused enormous discontent in China, led to this wave of protest, which was directed against not some peripheral thing, but a policy that was very, very, very closely associated with Xi himself. And that's really unusual. And it's a moment of weakness and, and danger for Xi. And if you look at this, probably one of the reasons that he felt it necessary to change this policy was also because of the really damaging impact that zero COVID was having on the Chinese economy which has been very detrimental because at any given time, large sections of the economy were shut down, people weren't being productive, and it's led to a real kind of sputtering of the Chinese economic machine. That's occurred at the same time that it's become apparent that China's facing other economic problems, problems like its aging population, like this massive overinvestment in um, real estate construction, which has led to a property bubble. And the central government doesn't really seem to have any clear answer to these problems. I mean, the demographic problem, particularly just the fact that there aren't enough young people in China is not something that you can uh, just, you know, deal with like next year or something. That's like a generational decades long problem. 
And this is leading to a debate that you start to see popping up in American foreign policy circles that people start to suggest that actually, you know, in the past, what we were really concerned about was a strong, confident China with a rapidly expanding economy that was going to displace the US as the as the um, biggest economy in the world. But now we see a separate debate over, well, it appears actually like China is a little bit of a wounded giant. Its economy is stalling. The population looks increasingly disgruntled. The Communist Party leadership might start to fear for their own legitimacy. And maybe then they're going to feel it necessary to lean into nationalism and conflict with the US or Taiwan in order to improve their legitimacy at home. Now, I think one thing you can say about this debate is that the Chinese are kind of damned if they do or damned if they don't. You can see here that there's just really this uh, belief in US foreign policy circles that China is a malignant actor. If it's strong, then we blame it because it's strong. If it's weak, it gets blamed because it's weak and it gets, you know, subject to suspicion one way or another. But I think a lot of eyes are on China's behavior in the coming months and coming years to see if it can, from the perspective of Washington, be a responsible actor in the international system or if it is going to take increasingly aggressive actions that the U.S. considers destabilizing and that's going to have a really big negative impact on the U.S.-Chinese relationship. So I think a lot of eyes right now are on that decision about sending weapons to Russia because if that happens, that's going to be taken as a real crossing of a red line and take us, I think, into a new era in this competition, one in which U.S. officials have a much, much, much darker view of China, you know, even darker than, than they do already. It's already pretty dark. And I think that you would see probably large sanctions by the U.S. on China in the event of it sending weapons to Russia and that's really going to tip us into a new phase in this relationship. So that's kind of what we're, what we're watching over the coming year to see where this goes. We'll be dropping another episode of this podcast soon to keep you updated on that. I consider US-China relations kind of one of the core topics that we cover here. So when there's a significant development, again, we'll definitely be back to keep you updated. We hope you tune in next time and thanks for listening now. Bye from me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.